Warning, this episode contains content that may be disturbing to some viewers. Viewer discretion is advised. As a society, we've entrusted police to serve and protect the public. And while most police officers do this honorably, some people are just monsters with a badge. Antoinette Frank wanted to be a police officer even from a young age. In 1993, Antoinette worked to make her dream come true and applied for a position with the New Orleans Police Department. But there were problems right from the beginning. Antoinette was caught lying on several sections of her application and failed two psychiatric evaluations for the position. But the department was extremely understaffed and thought that hiring more black officers would ease racial tensions that plagued the city. So Antoinette was hired. Shortly thereafter, she entered into a relationship that would be considered taboo for a police officer. In 1994, Antoinette met a young man named Rogers Lacaz, a well-known drug dealer, after she was dispatched to handle a shooting incident in which he was a suspect. The two began seeing each other and Rogers would go on ride-alongs, introduced as her trainee. He would sometimes even drive her cruiser. The two were said to have pulled people over and robbed them together. Apart from being a police officer, Antoinette often worked as an off-duty security guard for a local Vietnamese restaurant. She worked at the restaurant called Kim An, along with another officer and colleague named Ronald Williams. Antoinette would often go in to get food, but Antoinette's relationship with the restaurant and her fellow officer suddenly took a terrible and unexpected turn. Antoinette and Rogers had visited the restaurant twice on the night of March 4th, 1995. After they had left, the owner realized that she couldn't find the front door key and found this oddly suspicious. Antoinette and Rogers returned for a third time, this time after midnight. The owner saw them coming and quickly hid the money she had been counting in the microwave. The two unlocked the door with the key they had stolen and charged inside. Antoinette pushed past Officer Williams, who was waiting to be paid for working security that night, she shoved past a few of the employees, and while trying to figure out what was going on, Officer Williams was shot through the back of his neck and paralyzed before being executed while he lied on the floor. Most of the staff managed to hide in the walk-in cooler while Antoinette frantically searched for money. But two other staff, a brother and sister, were both out in the seating area still. Antoinette and Rogers found the two and demanded the restaurant's money. Unaware of where it was hidden, they begged for their lives. The two gunned them down regardless. The brother was only 17, the sister 21. Antoinette then took Rogers and raced to drop him off while she got suited up and returned to the restaurant, now in her uniform. This didn't fool the witnesses who had been hiding, and Antoinette and her accomplice boyfriend were both arrested. Both were charged with first-degree murder, and both of them were sentenced to death. They remain on death row today, Antoinette being one of two women on death row in Louisiana. Justin Volpe was an officer just looking for a reason to torture someone. An officer of the New York Police Department, Justin's work was cut out for him. But Justin was an angry man, and that kind of factor didn't complement his job. 
His rage reached an all-new level when he was dispatched to a disturbance outside of a nightclub in Brooklyn along with several other officers in 1997. Justin and the other officers showed up to find a number of people involved in a confrontation outside of the nightclub. One of the men was Abner Luima, a Haitian immigrant who had been trying, with the assistance of a few others, to break up a fight between two women. Justin and the other officers tried to control the situation as it continued to get out of hand. And then Justin was struck by a sucker punch. He blamed Abner and forcefully took him down and arrested him. Abner was in for the worst experience of his life. On the ride back to the station, Justin and other officers beat Abner with fists, nightsticks, and their radios. He was put into a holding cell and strip-searched, and then thrown into the bathroom. That was only the beginning. Justin sent a full-blown kick into Abner's groin and squeezed his testicles in his hand. What Justin did next took traumatizing to a whole new level. Taking a broom handle, he brutally sodomized him with it, causing severe injury and unbelievable pain for Abner. To make matters worse, Justin pulled out the broom handle and rammed it into Abner's mouth, breaking his teeth as he did so. After tormenting this man so harshly, Justin was quite proud. He walked through the station with the blood and excrement covered broom handle and showed it off, claiming that he had taken a man down that night. Abner's injuries ended up requiring a hospital visit where Justin and fellow officers claimed Abner had acquired his injuries through abnormal homosexual sex. The doctors didn't believe them and Justin was eventually arrested for the torture of Abner and received 30 years in prison. Abner was hospitalized for two months after the incident and had to undergo three major surgeries to repair the damage that had been done. Justin later admitted that Abner actually never hit him to begin with. Former detective John Burge is a perfect example of why torture isn't the best method for extracting accurate information. John became a police officer in 1970 at the age of 22. He was a war veteran and well decorated within the police service within his 20 years of being a part of the Chicago Police Department. Just two years after becoming an officer, John was promoted to detective and was in charge of investigating robberies. It was in this position that John's underlying hatred came to surface. John harbored a great distaste for criminals and those suspected of criminal activity. He wanted to see them locked up for their crimes, however he didn't want a trial. He wanted a confession. John, with the help of a few other detectives under him, would beat confessions out of suspects they had apprehended. He was known to slam people in the head with a phone book, put guns to children's heads, and even shoot people's pets in order to get answers he wanted. Allegations against him claimed that he would force suspects to play Russian roulette with a loaded revolver. He'd electrocute people by a number of means, such as by hooking a torture device known as the Tucker Telephone up to their face or genitals and brutally shocking them. Ten years into John's torturous rampage in 1982, he and his crew 
went a bit too far. Andrew Wilson was investigated as a suspect in the killing of two police officers and was horrifically tortured by John Burge. They electrocuted Andrew, burned him with cigarettes, and forced him against a burning hot radiator. One particularly horrible memory amongst them was when detectives stuck a plastic bag over Andrew's head in order to suffocate him. Andrew was, not surprisingly, found guilty for his crimes, but later filed a civil suit against John for the torture. John and fellow detectives involved, through a long, drawn-out legal process, weren't found responsible for the torture of Andrew Wilson, but the legal system caught up with John as more cases came to light and launched an investigation into the Chicago Police Department's policy on how they treated suspected cop killers. Another investigation years later found that John was responsible for torturing over 200 suspects, leading to false confessions and innocent people going to prison. Some people were released from prison outright after years of being behind bars, Some had their sentences lessened, and John would find his own place in prison. Unfortunately, due to the length of time after the tortures, the statute of limitations prevented John from facing any prison time for the tortures. He was, however, sent to federal prison for four and a half years for separate charges. It goes to show that evil can exist in every aspect of our lives and thrives well in environments that it should have no place. Priests, pastors, bishops, men of the cloth, they stand for their faith regardless of any circumstance, or at least they're supposed to. But you should know by now the risks associated with trusting a human being to do anything. The Catholic Church has a strict policy regarding sex. Catholic priests are forbidden from a number of earthly desires, sex being one of the most important. Clerical celibacy is a long-standing tradition in the Catholic Church. Priests do not get married and certainly do not engage in sexual activities. One priest named Eric Tiverdon disregarded this rule in the worst way possible. He didn't only want a sexual lifestyle, he demanded it without taking no for an answer. So the priest became a predator. One woman claimed that in the summer of 2012, Eric began to psychologically pressure her for sex. The pressure he put on her was immense and relentless, refusing to acknowledge what his priesthood required of his position with the church. He grew darker and darker in his intentions when finally, in late 2013, he raped his victim. But not once. She claimed to have been raped repeatedly by Eric, who would stop at nothing to get what he wanted. Once the woman came forward, more victims did as well. Two more adults came forward, but frighteningly, so did two juveniles and even one underage girl. Accusations against Eric were stacking up, and Eric claimed that there was a conspiracy against him, but the evidence claimed otherwise. Eric was accused of not only sexually pressuring women and rape, but of blackmail, sexual abuse, and the abuse of a child during the production of what was considered to be pornographic material. Eric was found guilty of the charges and sentenced to five years in prison. The state attorney appealed the sentence as being too mild. It's believed he will not see more than 10 years behind bars. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week. 
bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. Hans Schmidt was a German immigrant who was sent to New York City in 1909 to spread the gospel. While serving in New York, Hans met another immigrant, a woman named Anna, who recently emigrated from Austria. She worked as a housekeeper and Hans found her positively beautiful. He threw his oath to celibacy out the window and began to engage in a sexual relationship with Anna. It seemed as though his love for her was stronger than his love for the church. Hans and Anna eventually took their relationship to the next level. In a secret ceremony that Hans himself performed, the two were married. Again, Hans broke another oath he had made to his priesthood. He knew that if anyone were to discover his relationship with Anna, he would be defrocked and cast out of the church, forever seen as an offense to God. This wasn't the way Hans wanted to start his new life in the United States. But eventually, a factor came into play that would surely expose Hans. Anna became pregnant. So Hans did the only thing he felt he could. He slashed her throat with a knife. Once she was dead, he cut off her head and limbs and threw the pieces into a nearby river. But the body was eventually discovered and a trail led back to Hans. He was caught. It was discovered he also owned a second apartment where he had been counterfeiting money and even may have been involved in the murder of a nine-year-old girl. Hans died in the electric chair in 1916, being the only priest to ever have been executed in the United States. Sometimes you wonder why someone goes into the priesthood at all. Gerald Robinson was a priest at a hospital in Ohio where he ministered to the sick and terminally ill. He served there with a 71-year-old nun by the name of Margaret Paul, who was the caretaker of the hospital's chapel. Something inside Gerald one day in 1980 caused him to commit a horrific act. Gerald attacked Margaret in the chapel's sacristy, strangling and stabbing her to death with a sword-shaped letter opener. He brutally stabbed her 31 times in numerous areas of her body in a fit of absolute bloodlust. Perhaps most disturbing of all was that Gerald had stabbed out an inverted cross on Margaret's body, signifying what many believe to be an impossible truth, that Gerald may not have been a man of godly faith at all but something else entirely. It was believed the inverted cross was carved into her to humiliate her in death. Her clothing and body were found placed upon the altar in a position that led investigators to believe she had also been sexually assaulted. Gerald was questioned about the murder two weeks later. While the detectives were questioning Gerald, the deputy police chief, a practicing Catholic, entered the room and interrupted, which was anything but normal procedure. The chief allowed a representative of the church to escort Gerald off of the premises and demanded that the detectives give him the reports on the case. Some of those reports were never seen again, and it was believed that the deputy chief was covering up for what Gerald had been accused of. 
The case went cold until 2003. Police received a letter from a woman who claimed that she had been abused by Gerald in a number of satanic rituals when she was just a child, and that some of the rituals even involved human sacrifice. This accusation sparked up the case, and using new forensic technology, investigators examined the sword-shaped letter opener that they had found in Gerald's apartment. They lined it up perfectly to wounds on her body and imprints on the altar cloth. Prosecutors also found three witnesses who claimed to have seen Gerald near the chapel around the time of the murder. Gerald was taken to court in 2006 and was found guilty of the murder. He was sentenced to 15 years to life in prison. And life is exactly what he gave in prison. The 68-year-old former priest lasted eight years in prison until he died in July of 2014 at the age of 76. Murder oftentimes requires reason. However, that reason doesn't always require logic. Brenda Spencer was 16 years old in 1979 when she became a murderer. She lived in San Diego, California, right across from Cleveland Elementary School. Brenda suffered from heavy depression and an unstable family life, which was complemented by an irresponsible father who bought her a rifle. One Monday morning while at home, she watched the children assemble outside, preparing for school when she decided to open fire on them from inside her house. The principal and a custodian were both killed trying to protect the children. Eight children were injured, along with a police officer. While barricaded in her house, she spoke with a journalist on the phone. The journalist asked her why she carried out the attack. She replied with, I don't like Mondays. She was sentenced to 25 years to life and will be eligible for parole in 2019. Tonda Ansley had been watching a few too many movies. In 2002, Tonda felt that someone was trying to not only brainwash her, but kill her as well. So in an act of self-preservation, Tonda found her landlord and shot her in the head not once, but several times. When asked about the crime, she told police, they commit a lot of crimes in the Matrix. That's where you go to sleep at night and they drug you and take you somewhere else and then they bring you back and put you in bed and when you wake up, you think that it's a bad dream. Tonda was found not guilty by reason of insanity. This story isn't directed at any specific one person, but many people. Albinism is a rare genetic disorder by itself, but when a person of African descent is born with it, it's not only extremely rare, but potentially dangerous. Some followers of superstition, such as witch doctors, believe that body parts of albino Africans are able to transmit magical powers. African albinos are at times murdered, dismembered, sacrificed, and if they happen to die for any reason other than for ritualistic purposes, their graves may be dug up and their bodies stolen. Aside from these dangers, some people see albinos as bad luck and will kill them for those reasons as well. Numerous organizations are in place to try to end albino persecution. Going to a concert is really important for some people. Robert Lyons was in his mid-30s and looking to attend an Avril Lavigne concert. Robert lived with his mother as he struggled too much on his own and wanted her to buy him tickets to the concert. His mother refused, which sparked an argument, which led to Robert grabbing a bottle of brandy and striking his mother in the head twice with it. 
He then proceeded to stab her in the back with two knives so hard that one of the blades broke off in her body. He stabbed her until he knew she was dead, poured household chemicals on her body, and was later apprehended at a Hooters restaurant. Photobombing a person's photo can be considered rude and for some, punishable by death. Kim Pham had been outside a California nightclub when she accidentally walked in front of someone's camera, photobombing their photo. Some sources claim she also bumped into one of the people in the photo. This erupted into a brawl where Kim was pummeled to the ground and beaten mercilessly by two women, while others standing by filmed the event on their cell phones. Kim was beaten so badly she was declared brain dead and was taken off life support days later. Both of her attackers each received six years in prison. One of the most frustrating things about driving in a busy city is parking in a busy city. Detective Brian Stevenson, an 18-year veteran of the Baltimore Police and a married father, was off-duty and out for dinner the night before his birthday. Brian came into contact with Cyan James, a 25-year-old man who was enraged and argued with Brian over parking in the busy area. Unsatisfied when Brian tried to resolve the issue, Cyan grabbed a fist-sized piece of concrete and hurled it at Brian's head. Brian was struck and suffered massive brain injury and died just an hour shy of when he was to turn 38 years old. Cyan was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Unfriending someone on Facebook carries a significant amount of weight. When Billy Payne Jr. and his girlfriend Billie Jean Hayworth unfriended Janelle Potter on Facebook after a confrontation in 2012, Janelle was infuriated. Janelle's father, Marvin Potter, with the assistance of a friend, paid the two unfrienders a visit. Billy and Billie Jean were both found murdered in their home with gunshot wounds to the head. Billie Jean was found with their eight-month-old baby in her arms still alive. Marvin Potter has been sentenced to two life sentences while accomplices still await trial. Rap music isn't for everybody. Michael Dunn was one such person. In October of 2014, Michael was in the parking lot of a Florida gas station when he encountered an SUV playing rap music so loudly that he considered it not only disturbing, but threatening. After a short confrontation with the occupants of the vehicle, he removed a handgun from his glove compartment and shot through the door of Jordan Davis, a black youth. He was struck in the legs, lungs, and aorta, and died as a result. Michael Dunn was eventually sentenced to life in prison without parole, plus 90 years. Texting during a movie is considered a sin for many moviegoers, even if the movie hasn't started yet. Chad and Nicole Olsen were in a Florida theater to enjoy the movie Lone Survivor. Before the movie started, Chad began texting his young daughter. The sound of the texting angered Curtis Reeves, a 71-year-old retired police officer seated behind him. He initiated a confrontation which ended when Curtis pulled out his handgun and shot both Chad and his wife. His wife was struck in the hand as she tried to protect her husband, but it did little to keep the bullet from ripping through Chad's chest, killing him. Curtis is currently awaiting trial.
Cheetos are a well-known and loved snack. However, they can be harmful to your health in unexpected ways, apparently. David Scott and Roger Wilkes, two residents of St. Louis, were together at one point when David noticed Roger was eating a bag of Cheetos. David wanted some of the Cheetos, but Roger wasn't giving them up. This enraged David, who took out a knife and stabbed Roger in the chest, killing him. Police located David a few blocks away from the incident, and he was charged with murder. David had been previously convicted of other crimes, from robbing a post office to burglary and assault. It is not known as to whether he had the Cheetos on his person at the time of the arrest. It's always a good idea to periodically stop and think about why you're doing something. Hopefully it's as harmless as it is illogical. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way, because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated, and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care, and enjoy your next episode.